Do you have your Bible? We're going to begin a new series of messages today. And so today's sermon is sort of a, an, an overview. We're going to look at uh, uh, the, the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along in the book of Philippians. And we're going to begin in chapter number one, beginning with verse number one. Philippians chapter one, beginning with verse number one. And so if you have your Bible, let's follow along. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day unto now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Today, as we look into this text, we uh, uh, are going to look at an overview of the entire book of Philippians today. And uh, don't worry, we're not going to dig down deep on any one passage, but we're going to look at many different passages and some of the themes that are found in this book. This is one of my favorite books of Paul's. It's probably the last of the prison letters that are written by the Apostle Paul. It's written from a Roman prison jail cell, and he is writing to encourage the church at Philippi and to rejoice with them and uh, in their faith. It is a loving missionary letter from Paul, the pastor, missionary, apostle, to the loving family of God in Philippi in Macedonia. Philippians is a letter written to the church in the city of Philippi, which is in Macedonia. It's in Macedonia, in Philippi, at Philippi, where the first church is formed in Europe. And you remember the story, how God moved with the Holy Spirit, and Paul and Silas and Timothy and others were prevented from going to different places and preach the gospel in, in Asia. And so then the Lord brings them to Troas near the sea. And they have a vision from a man from Macedonia saying, come over to us. And they determined that the Holy Spirit was guiding them to go to Europe. And so they make their way and then come to Macedonia and Philippi, which is called by Paul a, a leading city. And indeed, it was a very important city. Not the largest city, not the capital city. That was Thessalonica. But it was a, a great city. And, it's, and there, the Apostle Paul is used by Almighty God and Silas and others to see a church planted and formed. And in this letter, it's a very warm and personal letter to them because there's an affection between Paul and this church. A strong bond has developed between them. The church was established with Lydia's conversion. You remember the woman from Thyatira, the seller of purple fabrics, and her and her household and business associates came to know Jesus Christ and were baptized. A slave girl was dispossessed of an evil spirit and comes to know Christ. 
And Paul and Silas suffer because of that and end up in prison, beaten and in stocks in the middle of the night singing praises to God. And God brings them out. And because of that, the jailer hears the gospel and he and his whole family come to know Christ. These were part of the membership of that church, but many others. The church was established by God's grace and work. It was made up of mostly Gentiles. There was hardly any Jews that lived in Philippi. There was not even a synagogue there. There'd have to be 10 men, Jewish men there to form a synagogue. And there's not even that many men there. Women were a significant part of the church in Philippi all, all the way through its ministry and history. It was a very generous church, a giving church, a helping church, a supporting church. And they worked with Paul. They were loyal with Paul. They provide relief to those who were suffering. So they were not only loyal to Paul, but they were loyal to the gospel. And it was a very healthy congregation. Notice in this passage that we just read, it says, Paul and Timothy bondservants, slaves of Jesus Christ, to the saints, to the holy ones, to those called out by God in Jesus Christ. In Philippi, including now, he says, overseers and deacons. So the church has been established for some time. They have uh, pastors, elders, overseers, deacons, and the church is growing and healthy and vibrant. And there's a love affection. He says, grace to you, God's unmerited favor and blessing upon you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice his affection, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. You're so precious of me. Every time I remember you, I think about you. I'm just filled with great thanksgiving and joy because of what you mean to me. He says, I'm always offering prayer in my every prayer for you all with joy. He said, there's just joy in my heart as I'm praying to almighty God about you. And I'm thinking about you. He says, I remember our partnership and our ongoing fellowship that we have together in the gospel of Jesus Christ from the very first day, from the day that Lydia and her family and friends were saved until now. I am so grateful and thankful how God is at work in you. Isn't that a beautiful letter? It's just a beautiful beginning. And then in verse number six, he says, I'm confident. What's he confident in? Confident in God's work among them. He says, I'm confident of this very thing. Chapter one, verse six. I'm, that he who began a work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, you know what? God's at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is working in you. Amen. So this Roman city, Philippi, was in Macedonia earlier. It had been, he was named after Philip, Alexander the Great's father. And it was the, in 322, in the, in the 300 BCs, it was the capital of of the uh, empire of Alexander the Great. It was conquered by the Romans in 44 BC, and it became very much a Roman colony, Roman city, 800 miles from Rome. But Latin becomes the predominant language, and Roman culture predominates in Philippi. And it's in the context of this culture that God was doing a transforming work 
among these Gentiles as they became pursuers of Jesus Christ. What about this book? What is this letter? What is this, this book in the Bible all about? Well, first of all, it's a great theme of encouragement. Paul is encouraging the church that Jesus Christ is in you. Jesus Christ holds you. And Jesus Christ is transforming you. And Jesus Christ is using you for his glory. He's encouraging them to live out their lives as citizens in a heavenly colony. He said, while you might be a Roman colony, more importantly, church, you're, you are a heavenly colony. You are citizens of God's kingdom. So walk out, live out your life worthy as citizens of his kingdom and worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I see the evidence of progress and growth and maturity. And I want to encourage you in that progress. I want to tell you that to remind you that the model of how you live your life as Christians is the model of Jesus Christ himself who poured out his life and gave his life and was exalted by the Father because he is our hero and he's our king. There are also, I want to commend to you, he says, other models. For instance, Timothy that I'm sending to you will be a model for you. Epaphroditus is a model among you of godly living and a Christ follower. My own life, Paul says, was a model, an example for you to follow after in your life. But the ultimate model is Jesus Christ and him. You see, the overarching theme of the book of Philippians is the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they're following him and obeying him. A secondary theme we find in this book is joy. And indeed, joy and rejoicing is referred to many times in the book of Philippians. Now, Paul's writing from a prison cell, but he's just filled with joy. He uses the word kara or joy five times in Philippians. And then the word to rejoice, that verb, is found 11 times. Paul is rejoicing and encouraging joy in the hearts of these believers, rejoicing in God's presence, rejoicing in God's provision, rejoicing in God's work in their lives. And so these joyful Christians that have deep faith in Jesus Christ, a servant's heart, and a glorious expectation of the return of Jesus Christ, to these Christians, he's saying, keep your focus on Jesus Christ. Amen. How could Paul write such a thing, being in prison? Has it driven you crazy to be quarantined? It's driving me crazy too. I think all of us feel that. But you know what? Paul was quarantined. He was held captive, chained to a guard, and not allowed to leave, and under house arrest, and then in prison arrest. And Paul knew what it was like to be isolated from friends and families, And go through difficult and hard times. But he had a great faith in a living God. He had received some support from the church in Philippi. They had loved them. And at the hands of Epaphroditus, they had brought a a gift to Paul. And it so blessed him. The part of this letter is giving thanks to them for the way that they blessed him, supported him, prayed for him, and were followers of Jesus Christ. As we look through the book of Philippians over the next several weeks, I want to challenge you 
Would you read through this, your copy of God's Word? It's only four chapters long. But in those four chapters, there's powerful, it's so powerful, so meaningful. It really speaks to our life. I, th- I believe that the Holy Spirit has led us to, to examine this book together over the next several weeks. And I ask you to go join me in the journey. So I'm going to ask you to do is every re- week, read the book of Philippians for the next several weeks. And then I want you to have a notepad and write down some thoughts or questions and notes that you have or truths that God speaks to your heart. Talk about them in your community group and let the Holy Spirit work in your life as you read this inspired word, inspired text from God's word. Amen? Amen. Now today, I want to take a few minutes and I want to talk about some of the great themes that we find. And we're going to have to hurry, but there's about 70 of these I want us to look at together. The first one is unity. And that is, uh, that is, is uh, unity. And so if you look with me in chapter number 1, verse number 27. You have your Bible? I think it's also on the screen as well. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see or remain absent, I may hear of your standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. He says, you know what? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I like the way that the, uh, the Holman Bible or the Christian Standard Version says, it says, conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so how do we live our life as citizens of heaven? And literally, that's what it is. The idea is you are citizens of heaven. So your conduct should be citizens of heaven. Listen, my friends, most of us watching this broadcast today, not everyone, but most of us watching this broadcast today would be American citizens going through these difficulties to gathers as Americans. But listen, the whole world has been affected by this pandemic. Yes. But more importantly, more importantly than our citizenship in a country on this earth is our citizenship in heaven under the authority of Jesus Christ. God has called us to live differently than the culture that we live in. Amen. And this is the thing that should identify us. Stand firm. Stand together, he says. And stand together with courageous faith. Don't give in. Don't live in fear. Don't be divided. The enemy's plan, the enemy's plan is to divide the church. Always has been. And when a church is divided, then the church is weakened. And when a church fights within itself, then the church loses its witness and its power. And the Holy Spirit is grieved. So let's don't give in to disunity. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 says, If therefore there's any encouragement of Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Let us, uh, the same mind, and uh, he says, 
maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Amen. So he says, be together, the same mind, together in the mind of Christ, in the same spirit, thinking together, intentional together, and one purpose, united in what is most important. I think Paul would say the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing and keep our focus on what God has called us to do. You know, we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for him. James says, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't it your pleasures that wage war in your members? And isn't that the truth? Most of the time when we get divided and when we become When we become separate from each other and develop our own camps and cliques and politics in the church, it's really based in our desires. It's based in our wants and not in Christ's purpose so often. And the problem with disunity is that it's not from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God makes us one. And so let's make sure that we're not divided, but we're together doing what God has called us to do. One of the things, the second theme is humility. We not only want to be in unity, but we need to practice humility. Humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than ourselves. Intent on the interest of Uh, of others and God's purpose. You see, pride is the enemy of unity and it's the enemy of spiritual health. Now, chapter number two, beginning with verse, if you have your Bible, look with me. Chapter two, beginning with verse number three. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself that's also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not, require to, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, he is our example. And he says, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, even though he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to grasp, be held on to. He emptied emptied himself. He poured out himself. He became like a bondservant. He became like the likeness of men. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. And he became in the appearance of a man. Jesus was born to a peasant couple, to, to Mary and Joseph. Jesus was born in a, in a stable in Bethlehem. Jesus was born and was considered to be a Galilean from Nazareth. But Jesus was the Son of God. 
He wasn't born to a king's family. He was born to a peasant family. But he humbles himself. He pours himself out. He lives his life among us. He walks humbly before us. He's filled with the presence and the power of God. And he's a, he's a servant among us. And not only that, Jesus is willing to be obedient to the point of death. He's willing to die for us, but not just any death, even death on a cross like a criminal. And on the cross, he loves us. And on the cross, he saves us. And on the cross, he served us. And on the cross, he suffered for us. And he died for us. Jesus humbled himself. And God has called us to live lives of not pride, but humility. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, you want to have power in your life spiritually? Live like Jesus. Become a servant to others. Jesus said, you call me Lord and Master, and so I am. And if I, as your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, so wash one another's feet. Listen, when you pour out your life and love other people with the love of God, I'm telling you, God will pour his power in you and change you to change the world. That's the kind of people God wants us to be. We're going to explore that more deeply in the coming days. The next thing is maturity. We're to mature in our walk with Christ. Now, notice in chapter number one, verse number nine. Do you have your Bible? Look, it's on the screen as well. Look with me to chapter one, verse number nine. It says, and this I pray. What's Paul praying for? That your love may abound still more and more in the real knowledge and all discernment. Wow. That you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Amen. Verse 11, being, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You know what Paul's praying for? He's saying, I'm just praying you grow up more and more and more in Christ, that you grow in your maturity of walk and discipleship with the Lord. And that, 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 that the, the life of Jesus is more and more evident in your life. Real knowledge, love abounding, discerning what is best and right, judging what really matters, what's really valuable, and that you be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What shows our maturity? Listen, one of the things that shows our maturity is love is abounding in our life. It's the fruit of the Spirit. What shows our maturity? We have joy in the midst of difficulties and hardships. What shows our, mil- our, our maturity? We have real knowledge. Not knowledge that puffs up, but real knowledge about what matters. And discernment. We're able to judge what's really good and right. And not only that, there's this fruit of righteousness evident in our life. Let me ask you a question. When somebody bumps into you, what sloshes out of your life? What comes out of your life? You know, we're going through some stress, aren't we? Difficulties, hardship. 
I'd like to tell you that every time something that comes into my life that aggravates me or bumps into me might cause me to just overflow with more love. <laughs> but sometimes it doesn't. If sometimes it's frustration that comes out of me, sometimes it's a aggravation. You ever get aggravated at other people? And you know what? Sometimes it's just not the fruit of righteousness, but it's a fruit of my sinfulness. And the only way fruit of righteousness fills me is when the Spirit of God is filling me. When people bump into you this week, what will slosh out? What's inside of you? How's your walk with him? And since this is what Paul's praying for. He says, I'm praying that you'll just be so filled up with the Spirit of God that when somebody bumps into you, Jesus, Jesus sloshes out of your life. You remember, do you remember when Jesus comes to that fig tree that's in leaf? Now, it had leaves. It should have had fruit. And when Jesus goes to pull back the leaves, he didn't find any fruit. When the Lord pulls back the leaves of your life, what kind of fruit does he see? What is he looking for? Paul said he's looking for the fruit of righteousness. The fruit that is the life of his son in your life. When people pull back the leaves in your life, do they see Jesus in you? That's what Paul prayed for, that you'll mature and be more like Jesus in your life. Isn't that good? Boy, I can't wait to explore that in the coming weeks. Number three, number four, legalism. Freedom from legalism. Legalism will throttle you. Legalism will kill you. Legalism will squelch your life. Legalism is not from the Spirit. It's not born out of grace. It's born out of law. And he says, be careful. Watch out. Chapter number 3, beginning with verse number 2. Do you have your Bible? Look with me. Chapter 3, he says, beware of dogs. Beware of these false teachers. Beware of evil workers and false circumcision. Actually, it says false mutilation. For we are the true circumcision. He uses a different word there. He says what they're doing is mutilation. But we're really the ones circumcised. Meaning God has done a work in our heart. Not circumcision of our flesh, but the circumcision of our heart. He's changed us inside out. Notice in verse number, who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I for far more. So now Paul goes into this whole litany of why he should have confidence, if anybody does, to to rest on their achievements in order to get to heaven. He says, I'm circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. He says, I am a persecutor. I've been a persecutor of the church. He says, when it comes to the law, he says, I'm righteous. But he says, all of those things I consider to just be dung, to be lost, to be vain, to be empty, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. He says in verse number nine, righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen, my friends, 
It's very subtle. It's very insipid. And it's very dangerous. But legalism and thinking that you're standing with God is based on your works is dangerous. It's dangerous in Paul's day and it's dangerous in ours. Our faith rests on Jesus Christ and the grace of God. Amen. And so it's a theological threat to us. You see, the reformers taught us it's Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. Authority is scripture alone. And it's all for the glory of God alone. That's the life that we are to live in Christ. So don't get off the mark. Don't go the wrong way. Don't follow after legalism. It's a dead-end trip. Amen? Mm -hmm. Number five, salvation. The great theme in this book is Jesus and his atoning, saving work for us and the implication of that for all of us. Chapter 2, verse number 6. In the middle of that great hymn, that great song here that Paul is quoting for us. In chapter, one of the great Christological passages in all of the New Testament. We will unpack that together. In chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 6, concerning Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped or clutched or held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amen. Our salvation is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. There's no other name, no other person, no other way that we can be saved other than Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died on the cross, he became a curse for us. He bore in his body the full penalty of our sin. He bore in his body the full debt that we had incurred on the cross. He became the cursed one for us so that we might be made right with God. The just died for unjust ones that he would bring us to God. And he satisfied alone a holy God because this righteous man, Jesus, died like a servant so that we might be saved. Salvation is found in him alone. There's none other. Jesus alone saved us. Jesus alone is saving us. And Jesus alone will save us. He's the one that justifies us. He's the one sanctifying us. And he will glorify us. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by his spirit. And we'll be glorified at his return. We are saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. And we shall be saved from the presence of sin. I'm telling you, Christ is doing a great work in us. Wow. Sixth, stewardship. Great theme in this book is stewardship and the generosity of the church of Philippi. In chapter number four, beginning with verse number 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last 
You revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He said, man, you have been there from the beginning, taking care of me, blessing me. He said, I don't seek the gift, but the profit that increases to your account. And I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. Received from Epaphroditus, one of the church members in Philippi, who had come with a gift, what you've sent. A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He says, your giving has been an act of worship. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I love that passage. We'll unpack it together. He says, your giving has been generous. Your giving has been a blessing. Your giving is an act of worship. And your giving will bring a blessing into your own life. Finally. And the other theme that we find here in this passage is the, the imitation. He says, what he's saying is, I want you to imitate Jesus. I want you to imitate others who are walking the life before you. And I want you to model your life after theirs. You know what he's really talking about here? Let me tell you. He's talking about something very important to the vision and strategy of Bethel. And that's that we be in relational discipleship. That we're in relationship with God first. Then we're in relationship with one another that's healthy. And then we're in relationship with others who are helping us to grow and be the Christian God's called us to be. That we're modeling a Christian life, not only in obedience to God, but for others who come behind us for our children, for our grandchildren, for our spouse, for coworkers, for fellow students, that we are modeling the Christ life so that others might grow in their faith and their walk with God. Mm. So that's the great thing that he's teaching us here. Chapter 2, verse number 19 Chapter 2, verse 19, listen to what he says. One of those models is Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they seek after their own interests, not Christ Jesus. But you know his proven worth. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself 
will be coming shortly. You know what he's saying is, I'm going to send Tim. Tim's my son. There's nobody else like Tim. Tim will remind you of me. Tim walks with Jesus. Tim, Tim is one of my disciples. And when you see Tim, you'll be reminded of me. And you'll mostly be reminded of Jesus because he walks with him. That's the kind. He, he later says the same thing, same thing about Epaphroditus, one of their men. And then he says the same thing about himself. He says, model your life after us because we're modeling our lives after Jesus. Relational discipleship is a key to a healthy church vibrantly carrying out what God has called us to do. Amen. Well, today, these are some of the great themes. But the overarching theme of this book is this. It's about Jesus, every line. It's about our relationship with God, loving him supremely, and Jesus as Lord. And then our relationship with each other, that it is a relationship that's healthy and builds us up and strengthens us to be all that God has called us to be. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you putting your faith in him alone as your personal Savior? You can't, you can't know the themes of this book if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. The truth of the matter is this. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Would you agree with me? We're all sinners. You're created. God has a plan and choice, a, a plan for your life. Every one of you. But listen to me. Sin is destroying us all. And we need a Savior. And we need forgiveness. And we need transformation. And only Jesus can do that. There's none of us righteous. No, not one. We but we've all deserved to die. We all deserve sin and death. But God has demonstrated his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He served us. He saved us. Huh. Christ died for our sins, yours and mine, according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Listen to what Paul said. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on him? Have you trusted him? Have you put your faith in him? If not, then today would you give your life to him and begin this great journey of joy and faith with me. Listen, God's speaking. Father in heaven, as we hear your words today, I pray that we'd obey you, trust you, live for you. Lord, as we look at these great themes in the book of Philippians in the next several weeks, I pray that you'd strengthen and encourage our hearts. But Lord, if there's one person here today listening, and they've never nailed it down that they're going to follow Jesus and put their faith in Jesus alone, I pray that the Lord, they would pray a prayer like this, dear God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've gone the wrong way and made a mess in my life. And I know I'm not good enough to earn heaven. But I believe that Jesus is your son. And I believe he died for my sins. And I believe he rose again. And I want you to be the Lord and master and king of my life. And I trust in you. I put my faith in you. Save me, God. 
In Jesus' name, amen.